Welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we like to call it, the PIMP podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today on the podcast, our interviewees include graduate students like myself, my name is Elizabeth, and some of my other colleagues. Hi, I'm Nidhi. Hello, I'm Kripa. And today we are very, very excited to have with us Dr. Corinna Hawkes. She's the director of the Center for Food Policy at City University of London, UK, and a distinguished fellow at the George Institute for Global Health. She has worked for over 20 years with UN agencies, government, universities, NGOs at the city, national level, international level, and to support the design of more effective policies throughout the food system to improve diets, prevent malnutrition, obesity, and non-communicable diseases. Welcome to the PIT podcast, Dr. Hawks, and thank you so much for speaking with us today. Well, thanks for um, inviting me. It's great to be here. I know we're very, very excited, and, and actually to warm us up to start this podcast, we really would like to, to hear a little bit more about your early career trajectory. So maybe a bit how you started as a graduate student and what brought you to the field of international nutrition and policymaking. Uh, sure, yeah. Well, um, I fell into my PhD. I, I wasn't ever intending to do a PhD. When I left university as an undergraduate, there were very few jobs around. And the only one I could find, and I wanted to be in London, I'm from the UK, I wanted to be living in London, and I have a passion for travel. So I was fortunate that a job came up as a research assistant at King's College uh, in London, in my field, which is geography. I don't have a training in nutrition, as it happens. As part of that, my supervisor encouraged me to do a PhD. So I did a PhD in environmental geography, which touched on food systems and involved food systems, but it was really a kind of ecology and about systems approaches uh, in how we understand climate, plant and, and soil relations. And I didn't enjoy it much. Uh, a lot of it was quite mathematical. I'm not really a numbers person. Um, and so when I left, all I could think about was doing something uh, very different. I got married the same day that I got my PhD certificate through in the mail, I remember. And, and my husband had a sabbatical at UCLA, Los Angeles. And, and we went off there and I had time off for the first time in, in years. I just spent time getting the bus, walking, a bit unusual around Los Angeles. And I discovered farmers markets. Uh, I'd never come across such things before. And it sparked something in my mind about how much I love food. And suddenly in that time when I had space to reflect, it all came together. My love of cooking, my love of food, the passion that my mother, my late mother had for food. In my family, I had some scientists who'd worked very much on vitamins and, and biochemistry. And so it all kind of came together. And so I went back to England and volunteered at an organization um, that was around advancing healthy, healthy public policy in, in food to stay in the Alliance for Better Food and Farming. And that's kind of got what me started. And I, I think I'd been looking, I was very much into environmentalism when I was a, a child and I'm still very passionate about that, but it kind of didn't really feel close. There's something about food that is like it's on the plate. Uh, I, I love to eat good food. And I'm very fortunate that I have access to good food. And I'm able to eat good food given my relative privilege. And so I'm, I'm very yeah, passionately driven uh, as a result of these different factors. And, and then 
I went on, I won't talk at too much length, but it's been quite a difficult past following my husband around, having a child, uh, all of those complicated things that made life particularly more challenging for women. And that what's always held me through is just a passion for what I'm doing and just a belief that what I'm doing is important to me. So through networking, essentially, um, I began to build a career. Thank you so much for telling us about your career trajectory, Dr. Hawks. Um, just knowing how you went from geography to international nutrition is very inspiring for all of us. And now, could you please tell us more about your work as the director for the Center for Food Policy at City University of London? And what does a usual day in your life look like? Well, the work that we do at the Center for Food Policy, which is the center I've been at, I've been running for six years now, is fundamentally about um, finding connections in food systems and understanding those connections and understanding what that means for public policy. So the approach that I take in my work is about making connections between things. Unless we embrace the complexity of real life and the complexity of systems, we're not going to find solutions to those systems. That's something that I value and a belief that I bring to my work and that we hold dear at the Centre for Food Policy. So it goes way beyond nutrition. Uh, it's a small centre, it's about 20 of us, but we are fundamentally interested in, in how the food system works and how from my work is about what influences what people are eating. And then to say from that, right, how can we identify effective, what's going to be effective from a public policy perspective uh, and also have uh, resonate politically as well. So a typical day, uh, well, during COVID, of course, and lockdowns, I've been working a lot at home. So I'll have to share with you what it's like to be working at home. But typically, uh, I'll, I'll get up and I'll, I'll do some writing. Um, I have my own blog page. I haven't had much time for it recently. Uh, I do academic writing. I write a lot of reports. I do a lot of policy briefs. And I find that writing when my mind is fresh is the best time to do it. Uh, then my daughter gets up and it's family time, getting off to school and all of that. Afterwards, after my daughter goes to school, I try and take some exercise, uh, go for a run or do a workout, and uh, which is very important for my mental health and stability, um, as well as physical health. Uh, and then I sit down uh, onto meetings. So uh, my meetings will involve anything from talking to my staff and having regular meetings with my staff, talking to them about projects, because um, I lead an, a bunch of researchers who are actually doing the research. I'll be giving presentations. I'll be part of workshops. I'll be um, so I'll, anything from my colleagues to things I'm involved with at the with the UN agencies. I'll talk with government contacts. I'll do informal advisory calls. I'm working with a range of different stakeholders all across the world all the time, uh, and I love that. I love the fact that I'm talking with. So it's not just like I'm managing my staff. I love that, but it's not just that. I love working with UN agencies, but it's not just that. It's also uh, working with people at the, the city level, the country level, and doing a lot of advice. So it's kind of research, advice, impact, and, oh, I forgot something rather important, which is teaching and talking to students. So lots of variety. Yeah, thank you so much for giving us a little insight about what your day looks like. And you definitely have a lot of roles to fulfill. Now, could you please, from your perspective, tell us uh, what are some of the main priorities or challenges in the field of public health and nutrition for the next couple of years? 
Yeah, well, my work is about helping the world eat better. And I think that is a, so vital for human development, health and resilience, and also uh, enjoyment and well-being and pleasure in our, in our lives. So that for me is where I think we need more and more attention and, and more work is, is really understanding what is driving what people are eating and how to change it. But what we need most of all uh, is a political commitment and a social commitment to seeing what the world eats, what we eat as individuals, as communities and families, as societies, as a, as a matter for society. This is the kind of the basic starting point. But I see just enormous, there's enormous inequalities in, in what we eat. But there is a terrible bias about gender, um, around uh, the role of, of women. Women shoulder the burden of feeding their families uh, and themselves and others, very, very much so. And I believe that that is one of the reasons why it's not taken seriously. The fact that we live in a deeply inequality, I mean, clearly living in a society of such as I live in is very different from living in different other types of societies across the world with enormous differences. But everywhere, there is this weight on women to deliver the healthy food and, and so on. And, and I see that it should be a social a matter for, for society um, and that feeding the world well will take a social effort because it's really, really hard to do that. So how can uh, research and so on help advance that? I think by taking a much more grounded approach. So if public health nutrition could really kind of separate itself out from kind of ideological positions because it can get very ideological and really base itself in a grounded way in the reality of people's lives and, and what they're eating and understanding the way that systems work from the perspective of people who actually experience it. So it's a much more grounded experiential way of approaching the subject. That's the trajectory that I'd like to see us move forward into the future. This is something we are also curious to know how we can get there. So it's very helpful to hear your perspective on that. And the next question that we had is more skills related. Given your background in geography and ecology and food systems, what are some of the skills that are most important in your current work? And um, how much of that did you gain during your PhD? Or how did you go about gaining your skills? Yeah, so I think there are two things. And I should say I'm a relatively late developer. I mean, when I look back at, at jobs I've had, I look back and I'm like, oh, my goodness, how did I get away with that? I, I really, I was not one of these people that, like you meet younger people, maybe you're the same, but meet younger people. I'm like, wow, how do they learn all of those skills? And they're only in their 20s or whatever. Uh, I was clueless about so many things. I mean, I have had to learn a lot. But there was one thing that I started with that I always seem to have had, um, which was supported and become much more disciplined as part of my PhD, which is this idea of being able to see the big picture, but also to be able to see the connections between things, uh, which is essentially systems thinking. Uh, it's something that I, I've been able to use throughout my career. And is I think the one thing that I did more or less start with, and as I said, was made much more disciplined by the systems, fundamentally systems approach that my PhD took. And I, I do think that systems thinking is a very important skill that we all need if we're going to make, uh, do effective research and take effective decisions about action in the field. And that came about to the way that I um, grew up and the training that I had in my PhD. 
The second uh, set of skills is leadership skills. And this is where I was really behind. Uh, I didn't know how to manage anything, let alone need anything really. Uh, I did lead things from a, from a young, in my, early on in my career, fieldwork teams and all kinds of things that I was leading, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, now I'm absolutely passionate about leadership skills and what leadership skills really involve and what it means. And leadership is so often associated with a kind of certainty and decisiveness and a charisma. And I really don't believe they're the most important leadership skills and practices at all. And I recently co-founded an initiative called the Next Generation Leadership Initiative, which is for leaders at all levels in nutrition and food systems. And what we're built around the idea that leadership practices, which involve reflection, listening, being driven by social purpose, uh, lifting others up, these kinds of skills, which are very hard to practice. And I won't ever claim I try to do them, but, you know, it's it's hard. I just do the best I can. Um, but those skills in, in leadership, I think, are absolutely critical and important for um, younger people coming through the system to learn, certainly to learn um, earlier than I did. But to a certain extent, it also comes with experience. You can't learn everything uh, right at the beginning. Well, no, this is, this is very interesting. And I think we're going to ask you maybe to expand a little bit more about what that leadership looks like for, for example, women in the in the area of international nutrition and, and policy making and all that. So I think what it looks like first and foremost is to be clear about what it is that you want to achieve in your working life. And uh, I don't mean uh, ambition in terms of career, which is very important, by the way. I'm not underestimating that, but to be really driven by what it is that you want to change about the world. Uh, most people who work in nutrition want to change something about the world. Uh, in, in nutrition, it's very typical for our, our world. And to be driven by that fundamentally and to understand what that means in terms of the decisions that you make. So when you're making decisions about what to do and how to do it, always at the forefront of your mind is, this is what I want to change about the world, is, is what I'm doing going to move towards that. And by doing that, you are automatically becoming a leader in the field, whether people recognize it early on um, or not. Uh, a second um, uh, way of being a, a leader in, in the field is to find, find your voice. There's a lot of women, and men too, who are fearful of speaking up uh, with new ideas. We're not going to get further unless we have new ideas. We're not going to get further unless we have new knowledge. And when you're sitting there with people who are senior to you and you've got this great idea, kind of terrified to speak it. Very common, very, very common. And I think confidence building on the one hand, but also changing the spaces in which people are operating so that you don't feel this kind of, oh, I better not say anything. Yeah, it, it feels that it's bearing down on you. So it's not just up to the, it's often women, don't, it's not up to them to change. It's for the people that they are working with who need to change. You need to be much more aware of what they need to do to make sure they're not holding back these new ideas coming forward. But it also involves going outside of your comfort zone um, because you might make a mistake. You might have a bad idea and that's fine. Uh, and not all our ideas can be good. Um, and there's a lot of very bad ideas by some very senior charismatic people, but they, the way that they say them is, you know, appears to be a good idea. And that involves kind of the ability to navigate, to, to navigate that terrain, but also to find a voice, but to listen very carefully and to understand where other people are coming from. 
and to really try and understand where other people are coming from in order that you can develop relationships and build that kind of trust and, and relationships. So these are the kind of skills that I think uh, we need among emerging women leaders in, in nutrition, but they don't get talked about very much. It's something that we're trying to do in this initiative that I mentioned, the Next Generation uh, Leaders Initiative. And it's something that I think needs to be part of our training um, when, we're, when we're getting our education and so on. That's a very valuable insight to like find a balance, find your voice and also listen carefully and how to build relationships. With that, we're almost coming to the end of our podcast. But before we wrap up, we'd like to ask you two final questions in whatever order you prefer to answer. What's the best thing about your job and what's the worst thing about your job? The best thing about my job is, doesn't take me an instant to answer that, is that I am passionate about what I do and I'm able to do that every day. And that is a privilege. That really is a privilege when you think that probably 90%, 98% of the world's population do a job that they don't feel in their heart. To do a job that you feel in your heart is a privilege. And it's the, the wonderful thing about, about my job. I should say, I, you only asked for one thing, but it's also I also work with a wonderful community of people. And that's just fantastic all over the world, my own team, and but also all over the world. And I love the international nature and the people that I meet is just wonderful. Uh, the worst thing about my job, having too much to do. It's really difficult. It's actually really difficult. Uh, it applies to everybody. Um, I've had, you know, I'm, I'm getting on now, but in, in my recent months and with COVID and so on, I've really, I, I'll be honest, I've struggled. I've struggled just, just trying to, to do what I believe is the right thing to do, to manage the workload that academic life requires, as well as family life, is really hard and it's exhausting and leads to stress it certainly led to stress for me and I think I'm not the only one and I'm happy to be open and honest about admitting that um, because I'm not a superwoman who can do all of these things and not experience stress so that's tough and it's a tough message for younger people coming through the system but it's a it's a kind of a, a warning really that unless we kind of manage the excessive burden on on academic life we're going to lose people to other roles so that's the tough bit that's the tough thing. Well, we do really appreciate not only your time, but all your, your honesty and helpful advice. I think I'm speaking for Nidhi and Kripa as well and say that we're, we're taking notes, we're appreciating every last bit of it, and we'll listen carefully again to this audience. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thanks for the great questions. It was a real privilege to talk to you. Thank you. And also, of course, thank you to all the listeners of this podcast. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening. And many thanks to Elena Kerki for audio edit in our theme music. Dr. Hawks also recommends several books in her blog, The Better Food Journey. In a recent post, which is linked in the description, she tells us about the books that influenced her to switch from binary thinking and embrace curiosity Hope you give it a read and see you all again in the next episode of the PIN podcast.